Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Intersections on the Spectrum podcast. The Intersections on the Spectrum podcast is the brainchild of Doug Fletcher and Kelly Brown Johnson, created to discuss intersectional issues within the autistic community and give visibility to commonly marginalized, repressed, underrepresented, or erased identities and issues. We aim to introduce you to the people and stories you didn't know about but needed to hear and hope that by seeing yourself represented in the community allows you to feel seen. Today's guest is DM Mooney. DM, welcome to Intersections on the Spectrum. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. We always like to start off about people's identities. So what are some of the identities that you identify with that are important to you in your life? Sure. Identities. Well, um, as far as gender identity, I identify as non-binary, masculine presenting. Another identity, um, I am Afro-Latino, so first-generation American. My father is Mexican. My mother is African-American. See, I am autistic, so I suppose I identify as, as autistic. <laughs> I think that's probably my, I mean, I am a parent and a spouse. Very important identities for me as well. Professionally, I identify myself as a human experience psychologist. It's a pretty broad term to kind of encompass all the work that I do that revolves around make, trying to understand people's experiences, their, their lived experiences, um, their challenges, their viewpoints and perspectives to help with my own development and building my own empathy and understanding of the world around me, as well as helping others to grow. So those are probably my identities. Very cool. And I think that's also um, partly an autistic trait to some extent when we try to look at other people, try to understand what is going on in their minds so that we can understand it and try to make sense of the world. So that's, I relate to that a lot. So you have a lot of cool tattoos. I have 10. I don't know how many you have, but <laughs> what's, so what, what's the importance of tattoos in your life or, or when did you start on that tattooing journey? Sure. Actually, it's a funny story. It's your first, I do a lot of these interviews and no one's ever really asked me about my tattoos. Before, <laughs> so it's a very interesting question. And I think that once people realize, though, that I am autistic and I don't do well with physical contact, like if people touch me, it actually causes a lot of rage and ag- agitation. So then my, one of my now good friends, he's like, well, how do you have so many tattoos? That's very cl- close and personal experience to have someone. And it was funny because the first time or the longest duration of time that I could actually have someone touching me constantly was a tattoo. Um, so it became sort of like therapeutic in, in which the only time in which I was able to engage physically with someone was during the time of like, having a tattoo. So I guess for me, I mean, I have a lot of them. I lost track a long time ago. It's really hard to count because when they're large, especially, do you count them based off of the image or like sessions or things like that? But for me, I feel like it was, again, like a therapeutic time in my life. When I, you know, my first one was I was 17 years old and I did not have, I didn't have a relationship with anyone before. I didn't touch and have close physical contact with my family. So it was the first time in which I had this time where I was, I drew out specifically what I wanted. And they still sold exactly what it was. And I had a bit of uh, control over the physical contact in a way that I was not used to. And they told me it would take this amount of time, and it did. And they told me it was going to feel like this, and it did. You know, So in some way, it was really controlled. But it allowed me a sense of normalcy to be able to engage with someone at that level. So that's what tattoos kind of mean for me. Yeah, because it is a super intimate experience. I don't think it people is. really get that. 
you know, and there's bodily fluid exchange. It's like if we want to get graphic. Uh, bumping but... into you and the way that kind of like, like nudge me sometimes and, and I kind of like tense up a little bit. But then now I've gotten so used to that engagement like that it feels more natural for me that I understand how it's going to happen, you know. So, I mean, it's very challenging for me because sensory challenge are my biggest ones. I like noise. I have to wear headphones 24-7 around because the slightest noise can cause agitation. And touch is a really big one for me. So tattoos kind of help me transition as an adult into understanding the normalcies and the expectations around physical contact in certain situations. So it was really helpful for me, actually. I identified what you said about physical contact because I am not a big fan of that. So <laughs> so I, di- I didn't realize that I have no tattoos. So so maybe, maybe if I get some tattoos, maybe that'll help with some of those things. <laughs> Now, on, uh, on social media recently, you talked about the idea of privilege and how it's developed a negative connotation. But you also talked about how we all have privilege in one way or another. What do you see as some of your privileges? Well, I listed several of them on the actual post that you're referring to, but I would say that privilege of mine, more recently than other, um, than you know, my past, but even say my, my financial situation, you know, having access to, you know, healthcare, being someone who doesn't live paycheck to paycheck or really too much concerned about employment in general is a very big privilege. You know, it's simply having access to things that you need to survive, to live comfortably, to develop, to grow, you know, things that, you know, my say my child or my wife don't really have to think about too much, you know. So it's definitely a very big privilege that helps me navigate spaces with ease, even as someone with autism having access to a behavioral therapist and to another mental health professional and also a primary care provider and being able to pay out of pocket whenever I want to to see an additional session with them, having them be able to come into my home and do sessions with me as an adult is not covered anymore, um, as many know. So those are definitely a very big privilege, especially in this space that was new to me because I wasn't born of you know, having money. So I know what it feels like to not have access to the resources you need versus having it. I would say it's a very big privilege that I think a lot of people overlook because they think that wealthy means also you have to be a millionaire or billionaire. When in reality, most people, especially in the United States, live well more, way comfortable, more comfortably or well, way more, have more money than, say, people in other countries, too. So it's a privilege that a lot of us, especially in America, overlook. Another the privilege that I feel that I have is that in addition, I guess I am autistic, but I am also a safari. I have the ability to process information exponentially and it resonates in ways that other people see as valuable so another thing is you know with people also you know we have our niches and our interests mine happens to translate very well for businesses so it makes them a lot of money and it's a privilege that my skill set and my passion and the things that i have focused on are things that other people see as valuable because then that turns into products and it turns into sales and that's why a lot of people hire me hey come do your what my wife calls a thinky thing where you come in and look at things and, and figure out how it all pieces together and a company will say, do this for me and I'll call your strategist and I'll pay you $100,000 and I'll do it and kind of leave that company, you know, very, because it's easy for me, but it's definitely, a, it's a privilege that I've learned over the years. It's helped me, you know, helped me get out of situations as far as coming from nothing and being able to use my brain alone to excel, get, be given a lot of opportunities and bypass a lot of things because of, they see me as valuable valuable tool to them. So it's definitely a very big privilege that I've, I've learned over the years that, yes, I am autistic and it comes with a lot of challenges with sensory limitations and, and social limitations. 
but it does have its perks in the fact that I see the world a lot differently and it enables them to monetize my skill set essentially. Those are probably two biggest ones that on a day-to-day basis that I kind of live with. But it's it's an important point that you bring up is the fact that, you know, many, many, many people will have skills, but it's it, are those skills considered valuable to the society exactly. that you're in? And that's what's yeah. really key. There's a certain amount of luck and there's also perhaps a way of thinking that you have managed to adapt so that it works for you. And yeah. I think... Ideally, I mean, I hope everybody who has certain talents, whatever, are able to do that to kind of that extra step of transforming it and, and adapting it in a way that makes sense for the greater yeah, good yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, I talk about that a lot actually with my coaches or my clients in which it starts with self-awareness, right? In order for you to understand your skill sets, you have to really truly know what are you good at? You know, how does that look in this current society or how does it look in your current environment, right? And a lot of people go straight to development, though they want to go straight to managing their skills and adapting it. But you truly have to sit and take time to introspect and reflect on who you are as a person and then identify where you want to be. And then you can develop your skills to align with where you're trying to get to. So it's not based off of social expectations or other people's perspective, but aligning and adapting to where you want to get to. Because my goals and the things that I wanted in my life seem crazy or, you know, like far-fetched or outlandish to other people, but to me, it made sense in my brain. And so I adapted my skills to address the problems or the issues that I wanted to address in society and change that I wanted to see in society. There basically wasn't even a role. The role that I do now did not exist 10 years ago when I first started it. They're like, that's not even anything. Like, you're using your skill sets to do what with technology? And you care about employees and job seekers? Like, what are you even talking about? This isn't a thing. <laughs> so I adapted my skills and you figured out a way to solve a problem more so than simply sell myself as a, some product. I was like, I want this is a problem that means a lot to me. And I can use my skills to help address this problem this way. And then I adapted my skills accordingly. So it's just a little different way of thinking about it. So that way you're still doing something you're passionate about. And you're not just adapting to make other people happy because it's not going to be make you happy anyway. Right, exactly. So some would say that earning a PhD and four other degrees by the age of 26 is a privilege. However, from uh, my understanding, your preferred method of learning has been through online platforms. So what is it about online learning that has been so helpful for you? Sure. So for me, it would be because... I learned better. I had, so when I was a kid, I was diagnosed with learning disability as well. They had me in sitting in a classroom and I wasn't able to retain what they said. So they, were, they would teach me, say, how to spell a word. They would tell me, this is exactly how to spell it. And then on, say, a test, they're like, now tell me what I said. I would be unable to reverse anything they told me, like at all. So they thought at first, like, well, you clearly, you know, like, you, you're not able to learn and can't pick up anything. When in reality, I learned more unconsciously a lot of times where how I learn is like if I'm listening to it, if I'm, I need to be doing other things. Like I can't only focus on the learning engagement. I need to also be trying to do something else like cleaning a room or tying my shoe or other things to keep me engaged. Plus the social aspect of learning, teaching, the physically being in my face and looking at me and having me raise my hand. Those things, because of the anxiety it caused me and the social normalcies that were involved in those interactions that were hard for me to pick up on and understand, it caused me to un- be unable to focus on actually what was being taught to me. So the social aspect of it and the like the auditory expectations and things like that made it near impossible for me to actually learn. So they actually ended up taking me out of the classroom and putting me in a special education program where basically I had what I now know as a behavioral therapist or a special education teacher and they gave me tests. They're like, okay, well, 
will expose you to some things. We'll have it playing in the background. So they had it kind of playing on videos and they had it all across the walls and things like that. So I was absorbing it as I was doing other things. So I have me with blocks. So I'm doing my blocks. I'm hearing it in the background and I'm seeing it on the walls and the posters and I would pass. Like I literally ended up graduating early because I was absorbing it from other and indirectly. I realized though that so to college, there's no there's no programs, there's no special education programs out there. So I got into you know a lot of big, very big colleges, you know like MIT, you know Navy, um, the Naval Academy and Georgia Tech. So I got into these really big colleges because I did very well in my ACT score. I did you know perfect scores on my in high school. But when I got pulled back into the same environment that I did not do well with before I got in special education program, I realized it still wasn't for me. And it wasn't just age. And they're like, you're in grow out of it. They're like, you'll grow out of it. You're intelligent. You'll you'll make it. But I kept trying. So I, I actually ended up dropping out of college three times. So I am a college a serial college dropout. I tried and then failed and I just and now have so much anxiety. When I ended up switching over to online college, it's actually because I was in the military time. Because of where I was stationed, I kept having to transfer, so it was impossible for me to stay in any college anyway because I kept moving. So I was like, okay, I'll try online college. I only heard bad things about it. You know, there was like, oh, it's not real, and, you know, it's not going to get you anywhere, and blah, blah, blah. But I was like, I'm going to try it anyway because I don't really care about people talking about it anyway. <laughs> it aligns with my goals. It aligns with what I'm doing in my life. So I found a program that aligned with what I wanted to do, and I tried it out. And how it was structured, it literally is like, these are your readings. This is, you know, the course curriculum. This is the test you're taking. And I'm like, perfect. I ended up that first week taking all of my tests for the entire semester right there because it was a portal and it allowed you to do it. My teacher reached out to me like, you do understand that that was for the whole semester, right? Not just the, not just this week. I'm like, yeah, thanks. I was like, can you go ahead and grade it? Let me know what I did. And, and from, <laughs> yeah, from that moment, I was like, he was like, well, you got an A. Like, he's like, you've already done everything. He's like, you know, it's like you have to kind of put comments on people's things on the board. But it's like, other than that, it's like you've already passed. I was like, perfect, this is going to work for me because if all I have to do, this is going to work. I can work, I can, you know, focus on at the time, at the time I had a baby, it's like my son, and this is going to work. And from there, from I was 22 years old, from that moment, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I, back to back to back, earned my bachelor's associate degree the next year. Next year, I had my bachelor's degree. Next year, I had my master's degree. Following year, I had another master's degree. And then a year of some change, I had to go through my dissertation process and I had my PhD. I just didn't figure out what worked for me. And being able to just get all of my curriculum, all the information I needed right there in front of me, just tell me what to do, and I will prove to you I can do it. That worked way, way better for me than having someone teach me and the social implications and the interactions and the nuances that I don't care about, you know, trying to be a teacher's pet. All those things, I was like, I don't care about any of it. I don't need extra credit. I need you to tell me what I need to do to pass this class and allow me to do it. And that's kind of why I switched over to online, why I've always advocated for people learning their figure out what works best for them and forgetting about reputations, forgetting about brands of schools and all of that. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's, you're going to get out of education what you put into it, no matter what brand is behind you and focusing on your goals and your skill set and how you can achieve is really all that matters. So that's kind of my take on online schools. That's great. And that, you know, that's my experience right now. I'm back at school. I'm at law school, but okay. it's online only. But the first class, the teacher went and he opened up the first module, and then somebody went ahead and he closed them down. Oh. And then nobody could go. Yeah. And I was like, man. Anyway, and then my the second professor I had, she left it all open, and that I prefer that because I can plan ahead. And I'm like, if I want to exactly. be ahead, I can do it right, mm -hmm. rather than waiting for them to open up the module. Anyway. Yeah. And even if you don't do it, my thing is because I'm actually a professor now, so I taught my very first semester. Just ended like right last week. It was a really big hurdle for me because. Being told my whole life that I couldn't learn, I had a learning disability, to actually be in a position to teach is like, it's kind of crazy for me, like full circle. But I actually feel the same way. So in my own class, I teach too. I, you know, I teach every Wednesday and Thursday.
but I leave, I create my entire syllabus and I keep it open, not because I'm telling my students they have to do assignments early. I don't think that you're special or better because you do them early. I tell them, I don't think I was better than anyone because I did early. I did it in a way that made the most sense for me because those who may want or need accommodations to understand what's happening in order for us to, or I know for me to feel comfortable with situations, I need to know what's going to happen. I need to know right. what to expect. So even if the keeping the syllabus open or keeping the portals open means that you can look and understand what's happening. So I mean, you know, the combination is going to be about, you know, the questions are likely to be asked, you know, those topics that are going to be discussed, and you can be prepared for that social engagement because, as you know, for us, it, the, the you know, it can be very anxiety-inducing, it can be debilitating for us to not know what's going to happen in that social engagement. And we, we're not going to gain anything. We're not going to learn. We're not going to be paying attention. We're going to be agitated, likely to be, you know, stressed and burnt out from that course if we don't know what's happening. So... I leave it open not because I'm telling them or even advocating for them to do to be above and beyond and spend all their time getting ahead. I tell them like it's open so that way you know what to expect because in case you need combinations like I do, I don't want you to ask for it. You don't need to ask for these combinations. I'm going to try to provide me as I can for you to be comfortable because you don't know me. You just met me and your professor and I'm already in a position of power. So I don't want you to feel obligated to ask me for everything when I know some combinations I can present for you in advance. So that's kind of why I do it. I know not all teachers think that way. This is actually why I got into teaching because there are not very many people of color, let alone people with disabilities in these spaces. And I'm trying to change the dynamic with the teachers and the students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I left feedback for that professor about the fact that he closed down. <laughs> Good. The, the you definitely should. You definitely so. should. Tm, you just mentioned, you know, professors and position of power. Can you talk a little bit about that, that experience of dealing with professors? How often did you feel that dynamic well as a student i would say it was more so when i was going to brick and mortar schools i actually never had a positive experience for a number of different reasons whether it be because of my age i was significantly younger than everyone everyone when i graduated high school i was only 15 therefore when i transitioned initially to college i was extremely young and most would assume, like, oh, you're just you're gonna be treated well, you're a prodigy, and you know, everything's gonna be handed to you because you know, you're this phenomenon. I think that when people think that, they think of like movies they've seen, and honestly, those are usually all the time depicted as young white males, right? That's who they think of when they think of prodigies. And I did not fit that bill, I didn't look the part. So, and I was not treated as such either. They're like, like, who is this kid? They obviously call me like affirmative action high, like, you know, you know, admissions. Like, you clearly got in because of your color and this is like a race thing and what neighborhood you're from, right? So I often was othered as like, you're not exceptional. You just slid through the cracks because of affirmative action. So I never got the benefits when I was at brick and mortar school of saying like, oh, you're so young, you know, you're accept- exceptional. No, it was like, you simply fit one spot that we need to do for diversity. I never liked being different in those spaces because it attracted too much attention to myself, which then made people socialize and ask me questions. And I'm like, I want to put my headphones in and be ignored so I can learn. And, and so that was kind of the you know, issue. And with professors, that kind of was, I felt that too. They felt that was a distraction. You know, a lot of times, like there's a, literally a child in my room and it's distracting because everyone wants to ask this child questions, basically. That was my first round before I dropped out. And then the second time, was actually at the Naval Academy, and it just, it wasn't, I would say with my professors there, it just, it wasn't a good fit because it's just the culture in general. Uh, I was in the Navy, but the culture is just a lot different. It's very hierarchical. I mean, as you imagine, military is, and it's a very, it's like a frat, like a 
but everyone is in it. You are automatically in it without voluntarily <laughs> wanting to be in it. And it was just not a culture that I was for, like, as far as the hazing and, you know, all of that. It just wasn't for me. So I feel like in that instance, the professors facilitated a, a culture that I would see as very toxic. And a lot of people are now well away from in our generation. And then last, I would say, was when I was in grad school. I was significantly younger, like well younger than anyone who was in you know, their PhD program. And I was, I was trying to go back to brick and mortar school again. So I was way younger and only person of color. And again, being non-binary and being gender ambiguous did not help my case whatsoever um, at the time. Basically, there's just like, I don't know really what to do with you and what you're going for here, but like where you're a psychologist, you're trying to work to be a psychologist and we're not sure if you've aligned with, you know, our research department and things like that. So it was really hard to find a place in an environment where everyone is 50s and 60s and academia for 40 years type of deal. And it did look a lot different for me. It was actually what elicited my post that everyone talks about a lot, which is what a psychologist look like, because that was my experience my entire career being in the position I was so young and looking so differently, having tattoos since I was 17 years old, growing dreadlocks at the different time. So I had like the small ones and I just I wore very informal clothing and I did not want to put on an act. I've never been one to conform to the level that people expect you to. Um, I know that a lot of us, we, we mask and we assimilate, but I've never really gone, I guess, far enough for them. They're like, you're not doing enough to, to mask to what we're doing. I've always stood out. And so that's kind of why I never really fit in too well with my professors or students either um, in those type of settings. Now, you yourself, um, you mentioned earlier that you're a professor now teaching, uh, and you teach graduate level courses for a human-centered design program. Yes. Do you see being autistic in this position or other positions in the past that have helped? Do you see that being an advantage for you? That's interesting. I suppose it depends on how we're measuring an advantage, and it has to be depending on a goal that I have, which is not something I necessarily... Hmm. Okay, I would say that it would be an advantage to my goal, which is to make sure that everyone feels included. So specifically, the, the university I chose, because I mean, once I got my PhD a little bit actually before, people know who I am and my story, and they are, again, aware of my semantism and things like that. I did attract quite a bit of attention for universities to want to have me teach. But I thought it was very important for me that I selected a school that I felt I would be able to bring the most value to, especially on a representation standpoint. So my thought was that if I started teaching at a university like Georgetown, right, that they have access and the resources to garnish the best professors and best talent all over the world to come there to them, right? But a small university that's predominantly people of color or those maybe who do have people, uh, you know, who have more disabilities, those colleges don't have access to, say, the DMs of the world to come work for them because, you know, they don't pay as much. They don't have that reputation behind them. So my biggest thing was like, well, I'm in a position to where I look like these students and I even have some of the same challenges that these students have, cognitively speaking. So I wanted to make sure that I was upfront about that and talk to them about it so it make me more personable and so they felt more empowered and what they could do in their future and they you know they see because you know representation is so important so i feel like in that in that sense it did help my autism just helped me to better represent a community of people who often don't have a voice or who often see don't don't succeed in the way that is defined by society to succeed therefore their challenges are like oh whatever who cares we don't we don't care about it but i do know that people will 
listen or respect, say, me because of some of the others. Like, well, you have money and you have a fancy title and you have a PhD. In that instance, I would say that it helps me to be able to resonate with those people and just those individuals who don't have that level of representation or that level of access to individuals who look like me. I guess maybe with organization as well. I mean, of course, I'm able to then, like, I was able to design courses pretty quickly and they started and I was immediately able to design these very innovative courses that I know that a lot of my students have said were a very different approach to teaching that they'd never heard before. So in that aspect too, I was able to come in and change the way these classes were taught in a way that they said was very engaging and practical. So that, I mean, I guess it's positive too, but I just, I learned that last week. So that guess is a new one for me. I wasn't aware of that one until, until last week when the course was basically ending. But I did get feedback from even now that the chair of that particular department that was saying that it was a very innovative way of going about it that they had never really thought about. So I guess that's another pro that I'm just now realizing. I, I just designed it that way. I thought it was logical. I didn't realize it was anything different. So <laughs> That's because most of the world is not logical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it seems most efficient way. We have 16 weeks to teach something and this is the way we teach. You know, they're like, we haven't seen that before. I was like, oh, okay. But something else you said struck me when, you know, how representation matters, but in a I'm going to take it from a different way of looking at it. You know, when people come and they have these ideas about what an autistic person is supposed to be, let's just forget, let's forget, you know, race and everything else. Uh, not that it's not important, but <laughs> for a minute, you know, and people have this idea about what an autistic person is supposed to be able to do and what they can accomplish and what they're supposed to look like and all that. And, you know, you going in and being open to the students is going to be life-changing. Yeah. Right. Because any idea that they had, if they were already closed-minded in the first place, they're going to be like, "What? You mean I just had a whole semester? <laughs> what? You know?" Yeah. So that to me is better than a movie. It's better than the media. It, it's real exactly. life, and it's, and it's yeah. you know, that's what people need to see. So. I totally agree. Actually, I had a post about that too recently. Just what lots of them look like, and I thought it was interesting because. When I tell people, you know, I, I am very open. I have that. I feel like that's even a privilege in itself to be able to be open enough to say, oh, yes, I have autism and I need these combinations, or I won't be doing things for you. You know, that's not something that everyone can say. But I tell the company all the time, like, if you want me to be there, I need these combinations because I have limitations, right? But my openness about it, if a lot of times people will immediately go, oh, but you don't want autism, autistic, right? And I know it's supposed to be a compliment, like, whatever that's they think in their brain, they're like, you are better than that. But it also, it shows a level of like ignorance and a misunderstanding of, you know, what we're going through because basically it's like, oh, well, you mask very well, or you're assimilating enough basically for us, or you know what, you're intelligent, like you said, in a way that's good for us. So you must not have an issue and you can socialize at least enough for us to be able to utilize you the way we want. And that's basically all I'm hearing is that, you know, or it does not seem like a compliment to me. It just shows me that, like, you know, a lot of times, like, well, you have this assumption about what we're supposed to look like and how we're supposed to act and what level of intelligence we're supposed to have and what we're able to do. And you telling me that I happen to fit within that box does not show me that you're willing to learn more about what we actually go through. It doesn't show me that you're willing to maybe accommodate for those who fall outside of your box. Or it doesn't show me that you care about me if I don't don't fall in the box. Because the problem here is that a lot of people with me is that 
yes, I'm able to mask or assimilate maybe for a short period of time, but it takes one person in a meeting to touch my shoulder and I can go nonverbal or I can lash out and now I fall outside your box. So now you're telling me I no longer look like what you thought I should look like. So now I'm not going to be receiving accommodations that I need or you're going to think less of me because now I don't fall within your scope. So that's kind of what I hear when people talk about like, whether I look autistic or don't look autistic versus asking me what does autism look like to you. And that's why I much prefer, and I actually ask people that too. Like, what does ADHD look like? Did you come my wife has ADHD? Like, what is it like to you? You know, that's what we have all the time. And I think it's a better way of talking about it versus you're trying to be a compliment, you don't want autistic. Instead, reframe it to like, what is it like to you? What are some things that you deal with? Or how can I accommodate you? I think it's a definitely more appropriate way of going about it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that also just reminds me too of, you know, where you're, you're kind of accepted until... Do you not? Uh, yeah, until you, yeah, exactly. You know, and I've had that experience as well, where it's like they forget that they have a diagnosis or something, exactly. and then the minute that you mess up, there's no grace given. There's nothing. Nope. It's like as if the, the they can't parse these two things. And I think it's very very difficult, especially when when you have high intelligence. So then, when you're socially inept or you make a social gaffe of some sort. They can't put those together in the same person. Exactly. It doesn't exactly. make sense to them because they're like, well, how can you be this intelligent but then make such yes. a big mistake? It's like, well, this, or, is, how, this is me, right? For me, I feel like it's, it becomes exactly what you described. It's perfectly like you're so intelligent, Dean. Like you just came through and developed this whole process and you gave all the answers. You're such strategist. But then I asked you, how are you doing? And you can't formulate the socially acceptable response. Questions like that are, that are vague are very hard for me, especially if I'm in the zone of trying to look at something analytically. You're essentially asking me to switch over very quickly something that's more subjective and socially based. And I'm like trying to formulate like, well, how do I come? I've actually done this before. In my brain, I'm like, well, someone asked me how I'm doing in that mindset. You should have a program answer. You know, like, I'm fine, whatever, right? But in that sense, I'm like, how do I measure today if it was effective or didn't reach my goal or was the weather appropriate or did this kind of go unexpected? So I'm actually trying to calculate how my day actually went based off of parameters that I've just made up in my brain. And I'm processing this all in the five seconds that you expect me to say, fine. And I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm hyperdrive trying to answer this question. And so I'm frozen and nonverbal and trying to like run through things. And you know, a lot of times I'll have like hand movements that are telling me basically that my brain's thinking. And they're like, okay, like what are you doing? You know, like, or I'm there choosing me to someone who's like fancy and prestigious, whoever, right? So I'm doing that in front of them. And they're like, what, you know, they don't want to say like, oh, well, you know, Dr. Mooney, our prize subject matter expert, can't answer your one question. It becomes hard for them to figure out what to do next. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. Like, it's hard for them to explain someone who just showed this display of intelligence and credentials. Also, the other spend in the spectrum can't even socially interact like us normal people can. So that's a lot of times I face that quite often, actually, with employers and with clients. Yeah, so I disturb Doug almost every time we get on a call because I say, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> the wor- the like, worst question in the English language. <laughs> I, I do it to him all the time. <laughs> I, do, I do it to other people, Kelly, as well, and I hate it's when I do habit. it. It's my habit. I come, hey, Doug, how's it going? And he goes, oh, what do you want me to say? <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, it's so funny hearing you say it because I talk to my wife about it, too. Like, like, well, like, she's like my buffer a lot of times for social interaction. She swoops in and like it's kind of like well like shield it, but we talk about that time like how, how funny it is because I'm like the simplest things will knock me off. I I'm off my rocker. I can't understand how to respond. But then again, someone asks me something complex and or random nonsense, cool you know facts about something, and I'm like, oh, I can talk to you about that. <laughs> so 
I mean, how am I doing? You asked me how I'm doing. I didn't even contemplate that the entire day. I don't know. I've actually told someone that before. I was like, next time you ask me, maybe you give me some metrics and KPIs right now. So next time, I, next time you ask me, I'll be able to correctly based off of what you perceive to be good and bad. Because who's to say? Like, who's saying what fine is versus not fine? It's a broad concept. And I would like for you to tell me how I can measure it consistently. Therefore, I'll be able to answer it every single time reliably and with a high level of validity. That's how I look at it. <laughs> and they're going to be like, I said before someone during like a party, like a social gathering, and they're like, Okay, and they didn't talk to me the rest of the night. I, they, and I was happily, I was happy with that. I'm gonna start responding like that every time. And that's all it takes for me to be left alone. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> Derailed by the how are yous. Oh, <laughs> so, in in addition to being a professor, you also work at Periton. As, is that it, Periton? Yeah. yeah. Okay. As a as the chief experience officer in the defense sector, so what are your responsibilities in that position? Sure. So it's an interesting role. I feel like first of all, UX in general is such a broad field and industry, so a lot of people do different things. And CXOs are a very new role. UX is new, but chief experience officers at that level of seniority for UX is actually very very new. So I feel like whenever I explain to people what I'm doing, it's very different from maybe other CXO roles. So in my case. I came in to develop the framework or strategy in which UX will be deployed across the military or Air Force, specifically physical contract, right? So it's a higher level model of like continuous work. I'm not a people manager in this role. I don't necessarily do well. Again, for the social interaction piece of it, I don't usually do well. I am a thought more of a thought leader and a strategist to say, okay. These are their problems. Like I told you, I come in and say, give me all your problems, give me all your business objectives. Now we'll figure out a plan or a strategy in which you can continuously address them and also innovate. So in my role, that's what I do. I listen to problems. I listen to objectives. I listen to the resources that are available and say, okay, when that's the case, this is how uh, an approach you can take to reach your end goal. I do a lot of analysis usually right, right there in the meeting and say, and I listen to them again, I, I usually kind of stay muted the entire time and just listen to what people are saying. And then I create a framework or model for that. And then a lot of time now, once that's done, I also write white papers. So like I describe them in writing, you know, kind of in a way that's easy to consume by others. I talk a lot about that too. It's like using big words and complex sentences and all that stuff. People think it makes them sound so smart, but how I've learned is like if you can't really explain it in a simple way that resonates with the people you're trying to reach, then it really is useless. So I turn all of the engineering or technical jargon and IT, all that, I make it in a way that's easier for people to understand. So that's kind of how I, I'm like a translator of that type of information. And then I also will attend like conferences and appearances right now virtually mostly, but where I can then train or advocate for users and say this is why it's important for you to care about you know your end users and why you should invest and put money into you know technologies that are more accessible or usable you know and consider your end users more your employees more so it's more of a strategic thought leadership type of role more so than people manager which is different because you know again there are roles for CSOs that are more people manager there are some that are involved more product side it just depends but that's mine it sure seems like you've accomplished a lot. And, um, you know, when talking about your accomplishments, um, I saw where you said, you know, in the past that all you did was not listen to what others said, I couldn't or shouldn't do. Do you have advice for others on how to best pursue things that, you know, truly matter to them? Sure. 
I touched, touched on it a little bit earlier, but there's a, I guess, a framework. Like I said, I'm a very process-oriented person in which I always kind of walk through with my coaches or my clients, which would be to start with self-awareness. And so, again, it's you identifying. I kind of break them up into like five different segments. But it's once you identify kind of your limitations, I always, kind of, I always say limitations versus weaknesses. Limitations are different weaknesses in which weaknesses implies that eventually after working hard, you can overcome them, right? Limitation refers more to like actual things in which you need accommodations to over and to help you be successful. There are, we all have our maximum in which we need assistance from others or from technology, or whatever to help us. So it's important that you identify your limitations versus your weaknesses because you can work yourself to death and realize that simply an accommodation would have helped you achieve a lot faster. So basically once you identify your strengths, your interests, your desires, your goals, and your limitations, then I kind of have to break it up to like, you know, so what do you want to do? You know, what do you want to do could mean work. But it also could mean, you know, just how you want to spend your day every day. It could be volunteering. It could be whatever, right? And then I would think from there, it's like, okay, who do you want to make an impact on? And it's a very important question because that kind of tells you what industry you work in. What type of roles would you invest in? When you end your day, do you want to say, I brought value to your life? I think it's very, very critical when trying to figure out, you know, how to make a plan for anything. And then who's in your life? So who's in your life is both personal and professional. So who's in your life could be, do you work with a team every day? Do you have a family? You know, because that helps you prioritize and assign, really understand your goals. Next one is, where do you want to live? Because that could be state. It could be, you want to live in a different country. Do you want to live in the city? Do you want to live in, you know, the suburbs? Where do you feel the most comfortable and where you would be able to say, I am content with where I am? That impacts, of course, salary requirements. It impacts maybe what jobs you can take on. It impacts a lot of things. Who is in your life again? Because all of these are connected. This is why I always kind of walk through these five. And the last one is what's your financial situation? Financial situation is not – people like to say, oh, I want to be a millionaire. I, I hear that so much. It's like when I talk to entrepreneurs you know, who are starting up a new business, like, I just want to be rich. right? I'm like financial situation is not necessarily about how much money is in your bank account. Financial situation is – how stable are you? As in, do you have a little paycheck to paycheck? Would you be able to make it six months without any income? What would make you comfortable? What make you um, make you feel like every day you are living uh, comfortably and happily based off your financial situation and describe what that actually looks like? And that takes a lot of work a lot of time. That's probably takes the most amount of work. From there, though, you're able to you're basically you're defining your to-be state. So you're saying if you are doing what you want to do every day, if you're living where you want to live, you have the people in your life you want to have, you're making the impact you're making an impact on, and your financial situation is in the most ideal state. You're defining what your goals are in a lot of ways, professionally and personally. You're really walking through and understanding what that is. From there, you're going to go backwards and say, now compared to where you want to be, where are you right now? That's where you're really getting the most impact for your self-awareness. And you're able to say, okay, doing a gap analysis saying that this, this is where I am right now and this is where I want to be. You're able to really easily say, these are steps that can help me to get there in these specific areas. But you're compartmentalizing them into five sections to say, right now, I want to prioritize where I want to live. This is how far I am from where I want to be. Now, let me figure out how to come up with an appropriate plan to help me get there. What do I want to do? The same thing. Now, I'm going to focus on my career right now and help me get there. If you have this astronomical life goal where it's so big, it's going to be hard for you to actually attain it and hard for you to measure if it's successful or not, then you're not going to be able to achieve it. But if you break them up into those five and then have steps to help you get there from each of those five, it's really a lot easier for you to tackle and to actually realistically be able to measure if you reach them and to modify and stay agile if they change. And then be able to say, when you wake up in the morning, if you say where I'm going to live and you say this is what it was, you can say yes or no, I achieved it. So you make sure they're also staying smart, like, you know, measurable.
that's my recommendation in a very watered down version of what I got five minutes to explain that something that I have to go through about four or five sessions with my clients to get through. So, but I think, you know, what you're doing is you're having them define success for themselves in exactly. a way that aligns exactly with their right. values, right? Yep. That's um, exactly it. You define success for yourself. If you had to put in one sentence, that's exactly what I'm doing. Not based off anyone else, but success for them. And that's what's so important. I find when I had my first business, I had other people who were trying to define my success for me. So I was proud of myself. I said, oh, you know, I accomplished this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And somebody's like, well, can you, this is like, you know, the early 2000s. He's like, well, can you afford a flat screen TV? I'm like, well, I don't, but I don't want a flat screen TV. Exactly. I don't watch TV. I'm working on my business, right? I don't <laughs> want a flat screen TV. So that's not what success is to me. But it's really important that you don't get caught up in, I think, again, autistic people, a lot of us are really good at staying away from peer pressure. And if we focus exactly on what we want to do, we're going to do it. So Yes, but it's hard to do that if you don't define it first. That's what right. I've always learned is that, like, the knowledge it kind of uses, people are, you know, like, I want to go. I want to travel somewhere. I want to go to California. So, but it's like, okay, well, you go to California, right? And you go out and buy a car. You're like, I'm going to buy the fastest, best car that can get me to California. But then the question is that I have, like, well, but you can't really know if you're taking the right or left turn, if you're correct, if you're moving appropriately or getting there fast enough, if you don't have a exact location, as in what address are you going to in California? Because once you know what address you're going to, then you can develop a map. You can say, okay, this is the terms I should say, and it should take me two days to get to California. And then you're going to be able to assess every day and say, you know what, I'm happy with my progress because I planned out that I'm going to travel 50 miles a day for three days, and that will get me to where I want to get to this address. So that's defining success. You are going to be content and happy with your progress as long as you define for yourself. And then you're able to make realistic, feasible steps to help you get there. And it won't matter because someone may get to California in one day. But you're like, I don't care. I plan to get there in three days. And I knew that was going to take me this long. I took breaks. I, you know, I enjoyed my life. I took the scenic route. And I got to where I want to get when I want to get there. That helps you with that level of contentment. But it really stems off from you defining for yourself because if not, you're going to be comparing yourself to the people driving by you compare yourself to people on your phone telling you you should be doing this and this and so that's really important piece that i think is being able to really define it for yourself that's where contentment comes from oh exactly this is such a motivating this is motivating uh, <laughs> <the best> podcast <laughs> so yes moving forward you know it's been great to have you but moving forward we, we want to highlight more people more voices amplify more voices who is somebody or or what type of person would you like to have us interview this year as, as the season goes on Hmm, that's a interesting question. Ooh. I would think an interesting person to interview would probably be someone in the DEI space. I think the reason why I would say that is because it would be interesting to hear their perspective on, especially like autism and cognitive disorders and where that plays a role in their focus on DEI because oftentimes, as you may imagine, it's not a high for priority. So I would like to hear their feedback as far as what their perception of these kinds of cognitive disorders are, was it actually like to them, and then how they then empathize with it, and how will they develop a policy around addressing some of these challenges, especially if they don't have them themselves. So like, well, how do you build empathy, or how do you understand something that you don't have to actually face yourself? Because as a DEI professional, this is included, and a lot of times, of course, foundations gets only about race and gender, but DEI is much more than that, and I think that a lot of times it does get forgotten. So I would say, if anything, I would recommend maybe talking with a DEI professional because that's where, you know, a lot of times they they have the funding and the resources to make change. So speaking with these individuals who have this, a lot of, this amount of power, you know, how are they actually, how do they see this and how are they actually making change?
Well, I mean, I guess I could talk to myself. <laughs> but, you know, that's why I, I don't call myself a DEI practitioner. I, I say idea. So I add the accessibility at the end. So it's include diversity, equity, and, and accessibility because that's, I just left off. But I'm very much also a proponent in the fact that people need to stay in their lane. So if they don't have lived experience with neurodiversity, I don't feel that they should be doing DEI in that area. I think, yeah. call that, that me then, good. call me. So you can yeah. deal with, you know, like, I do intersectionality, but I don't, I don't really focus on anti-black racism because I don't like having to have those conversations with people because I know that I'm going to be hired because I'm light-skinned yeah. And so I'm the safe black person, but I'm yes. not interested in arguing with people about yeah. my value and my worth. So I stay out of that. <laughs> so, that, makes, that, that makes total sense, yeah. actually. Makes total sense. Actually, my wife, she's light-skinned as well. So we actually have those, the same discussions, how it is different and how when she advocates it is a little bit different. So that makes sense, actually, having specialists in the DEI right. realm. I, in my experience, that I work as an psychologist, I work with DEI professionals a lot in like employee engagement type of activities. And actually, it's very rare that you see that they actually say, I specialize in the area. A lot of times, they are general. They're, they're supposed to be generalists. They end up just focusing on one area. So other programs are not really getting the attention they need because of that. Because they're not saying, I'm a, I'm a specialist in one area. Instead, they're saying, no, I'm a journalist. I care about everyone. But then you only see a lot of their attention and programs around one thing. And I think right. that's where a lot of lack comes from. I think it's that point. Every other body, I'm a psychologist. I don't pretend to care about every single thing related to workplace improvement. I say I specialize in, and it's okay to say that. I think that in DEI, that should be something that's more open as well. Like, you know this very well. You specialize in this very well, and that's what your area is. So. Yeah. I just don't want to get into arguments with people because I'm going to <laughs> fight somebody. Sense. Like, if they say the wrong thing, I'm just going to fight them. <laughs> I, can't, I can't have a business like that. So <laughs> I think that would still be interesting, though, to talk with the professional who maybe does not see it that way. It's like, oh, I'm a journalist, and so I care about everything, and then kind of see their, you know, what they what their thoughts on it, especially. Now, maybe don't maybe fight on the podcast, but just get their <laughs> feedback on and how do they think that they are honestly bringing value to everyone across many different diverse categories, considering that they're not something that they're impacted with you. That'd be interesting, I guess, if I had to think well, about someone from my own experience. Well, DM, you, you've brought a lot of value to this podcast, so uh, we really appreciate you. Thanks for making the time um, to talk with us. Thank you. Of course.